You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B-16 Burn In all his years of service, he'd never seen anything quite like it. Roman legionaries standing paralyzed before a swirling mass of religious fanatics, on a beach bathed in flickering torchlight. In particular, it was the circle of black-clad druids chanting to the heavens that seemed to rob his men of their will to fight. It was the kind of moment that seemed to last forever. But, in truth, it was only seconds before the slaughter began. Gaius Suetonius Paulinus was a man used to extremes. Two decades earlier, as praetor, he'd been the first Roman commander to lead troops over the high Atlas Mountains and into the baking deserts beyond. Along with Gnaeus Hosidius Geta, it was Suetonius who'd prosecuted the Mauritanian rebellion to its bitter end and secured two new provinces for the empire. And now, in 61 AD, he was again on the frontier, governor of the bone-chilling island of Britannia. Brought news of Corbulo's recovery of Armenia, Suetonius set his sights on similar glory pursuing British refugees to the western isle of Mona in an improvised flotilla of flat-bottomed boats. The scene that met them was unexpected, but a few words from Suetonius and the legionaries surged forward, cutting down warriors, women, and priests, and scattering the assembly. Soon it was all over but the mop-up installing a Roman garrison and demolishing the sacred groves. Okay, it was hardly the retaking of Armenia, but at least it was a start. Suetonius was doubtless pondering his next conquest when word finally reached him. An improvised army a hundred thousand strong had just taken the provincial capital of Camelodunum, slaughtered its inhabitants, and burned it to the ground. The army was mainly composed of two native tribes, the Asani and Trinovantes, and was under command of the Asani queen, Boudica. An entire legion sent to relieve the city had been destroyed by Boudica's army. Suetonius divined that her next target would be the Roman settlement of Londinium, and immediately set out to defend it. The problem was Londinium, modern London, was clearly indefensible. The procurator, Catus Decianus, had already fled to Gaul, and Suetonius quickly ordered the town's evacuation. 
those who stubbornly remained behind were killed a short time later, when Boudicca's army sacked and burned the settlement. When the queen turned her fury against the nearby town of Verulamium, Suetonius regrouped his forces and prepared to make a stand. Tens of thousands of Roman citizens, including a full legion, already lay dead. But Suetonius was able to gather parts of a second legion with auxiliaries and add them to his own, assembling a force some 10,000 strong. On the downside, the Roman prefect of nearby Isca Dumnoniorum, Panius Posthumus, felt the situation was hopeless and ignored Suetonius's orders to bring his own legion. With other British tribes having joined the rebellion, Suetonius now faced an enemy up to 25 times his size. His one advantage was the choice of where to meet them. Suetonius chose a narrow pass with a forest at his back, allowing the Britons only one route of attack. Boudicca was a brave, charismatic, and battle-tested queen, leading a massive army in a righteous cause, avenging her family's dishonor at the hands of the Romans. Unfortunately, she was up against an experienced general leading veteran troops, in a landscape where the power of her army was attenuated. The Romans threw heavy javelins to decimate her first charge, then advanced on foot in a wedge formation. It was overwhelming numbers against discipline and training, and it soon became clear which side would win out. Confronted with the deadly and impenetrable wedge, the Britons began fleeing toward the rear of their lines, where they found themselves blocked by their own baggage train. Trapped in the killing field, everything turned to chaos, and the advancing Romans commenced a slaughter of their enemies. By the battle's end, Tacitus reports 80,000 British dead, compared to only 400 on the Roman side. The fate of Boudicca is unclear. She is not recorded as falling in battle and may have either poisoned herself or died later of an illness. Posthumus, the Roman prefect who'd refused to send troops, killed himself in disgrace. In the end, Suetonius had found the glory he craved. Upon hearing of the revolt, Nero had been prepared to abandon Britannia. But Suetonius's experience and resolve had saved the province for the empire. It was almost enough to overshadow the eastern victories of Corbulo. Assuming, of course, that Corbulo had remained idle, which she may have done if Tigranes hadn't decided to poke the Parthians in the eye. When the Romans had retaken Armenia in 59 AD, they'd put Cappadocian royal heir and longtime Roman resident Tigranes VI on the throne. The Parthian king of kings Vologases was clearly unhappy with the situation, but he'd been too busy putting down rebellions to stop it and now knew that trying to dislodge Tigranes would mean a full-scale war with Rome. For the moment, he decided on a wait-and-see approach. In 61 AD, Tigranes, pumped up by his new kingship and feeling secure in his Roman backing, and maybe even thinking Vologases was a bit of a paper tiger, 
decided to launch an invasion of the Parthian client kingdom of Adiabene. Because it'll make me look decisive, and it's just a little province, and Corbulo, you've got my back, right? Now, as it happened, Adiabene was a pretty interesting place. Not only was it the next best thing to a Neo-Assyrian successor state, but just within the past decade, its people had converted from worship of the Assyrian god Asher to the Hebrew god Yahweh. This change had been instigated by the Adiabene king Izatis II, whose brother Monobaz II now sat on the throne. This religious realignment would have serious implications for the coming Jewish revolt. But for the moment, their main problem was the Roman puppet king of Armenia. As reasonable as Vologases was being, Tigranes' invasion clearly crossed the line. In short order, the Parthian king recrowned his brother Tiridates as Armenian king in exile and assembled a large force to reinvade the country. In response, Corbulo sighed, rolled his eyes, and dispatched two legions to Armenia, while deploying three others along the Syrian frontier. I'm guessing there was also a fair amount of grumbling about how this whole client-king thing was getting pretty old. Tigranes holed up in the Armenian capital of Tigranocerta until Corbulo showed up with reinforcements. Corbulo and Vologases then entered negotiations, while Tigranes pouted at the kids' table. The resulting agreement called for both sides to leave Armenia, an outcome that raised some doubts about Corbulo's commitment. Regardless, the Parthian embassy sent to Rome failed to seal the deal, and war resumed in the spring of 62 AD. Reluctant to risk his sterling reputation, Corbula requested another legate to settle things in Armenia, while he focused on defending the Syrian frontier. In response, Nero sent the previous year's consul, Lucius Cisenius Paetus, along with a few additional legions. Corbulo retained control of the Syrian veterans, while Paetus was given three less experienced legions, along with auxiliaries sent from the Anatolian provinces of Galatia, Cappadocia, and Pontus. So when had Pontus become a Roman province? Well, as it happened just that year, when its king, Polemon II, was forced to abdicate by Nero. And if you thought the whole Our Drusilla, Herod Drusilla affair from two episodes back was convoluted, just wait till you hear this one. After the death of Zeno Artoxius and abdication of Tryphena, Polemon was the last remaining royal descendant of Mark Antony's granddaughter, Queen Pythodorus of Pontus. Around 50 AD, Polemon was in a marrying mood. His bride-to-be was the Judean princess Julia Berenice, another sister of King Herod Agrippa II. But before they got married, she pulled a Herod Drusilla and demanded that Polymon convert to Judaism. And just like the Emocene priest King Azizus a few years later, the newly circumcised Polymon found himself left high and dry when his new wife returned unhappy to her brother's court. 
A few years later, Polymon dusted himself off, got back in the saddle, and took another run at married life. This time, the lucky lady was Julia Mamaya, the sister of the Emocene priest king, Gaius Julius Azizus. And I'd like to think at the wedding reception, Polymon pulled Azizus aside and gave him the brotherly advice to never get circumcised unless he knew it was a sure thing. To which Azizus replied, no worries, brother-in-law, because that would never, ever happen. Fast forward a few more years, and the Emocene throne fell to Gaius Julius Sohamus, brother of both Azizus and Julia Mamaya who went on to marry Drusilla of Mauritania. Which, for me, is fun, because it reunites the eastern and western lines of Mark Antony's descendants, Polymon II of Pontus and Drusilla of Mauritania, as royal brother and sister-in-law, even while a third descendant, Nero, is serving as Roman emperor. Anyway, in 62 AD, Pontus became a Roman province, though Polymon was allowed to continue ruling Cilicia. At the same time, Nero also provincialized both Colchis and the former Bosporan kingdom. In fact, by 62 AD, Roman client kingdoms were becoming an endangered species, which, given the behavior of Tigranes, wasn't necessarily a bad thing. But still, in the east, it was pretty much down to Cilicia, Emissa, Chalcis, the northern Judean Tetrarchy, and Black Sea Iberia, along with a handful of minor Armenian territories. To the south, the Arab kingdom of Nabatea survived in a weakened state, ruled by the brother-sister duo of Malchus II and Sagilat. And it's probably worth a quick discussion of another region I've neglected. The kingdom of Osroene sat at the crossroads of Syria, Parthia, and Armenia. It was founded in the mid-2nd century BC, around the same time as Emissa, by an Arab tribe from Nabatea. But where the Emesenes had allied with Rome, the Osroenes had initially backed Parthia. Their kings, invariably named either Abgar or Manu, ruled from their capital of Edessa. Abgar I was killed by Rome during the war against Tigranes the Great. Abgar II had played some role in the destruction of Crassus's legions. Over a century later, under King Manu VI, Osroene remained both independent and neutral and refused to take sides in the Armenian conflict. And yes, I have an updated map up on the Ancient World website. Per the previous year's truce, the Roman client king Tigranes had left Armenia, and the Parthians had quickly recaptured Tigranocerta. The new Roman commander Paetus marched on Armenia, took a few minor forts, then sent word of his great victories back to Rome. Which, well, yeah, not so much. Meanwhile, Vologases probed Corbulo's defenses along the Euphrates and found them unassailable. The Parthian king then returned his attention to Armenia, surprising Paetus with a sudden advance that crushed and scattered his legions. Paetus was forced to retreat to Rondea with the remnants of his army and send an urgent plea for help to Corbulo. 
Again, the sighing and rolling of eyes, and again it was Corbulo to the rescue. Except, knowing that Corbulo was on his way, Vologases ramped up the pressure on Paetus and forced him to accept a humiliating surrender. How humiliating? Well, his troops were stripped of their weapons, armor, possessions, and even their clothes, and were forced to pass under the yoke, which for a Roman is about as bad as it gets. March to the Euphrates, the demoralized soldiers finally met up with Corbulo's legions. Hoping to recover a smidge of Roman honor, Paetus pled with Corbulo to proceed with his invasion. But Corbulo decided to stay put and see how things played out back in Rome. The high spirits in the capital, triggered by Paetus's earlier reports of victory, came crashing down in the spring of 63 AD, when the Parthian embassy arrived with the terms they'd forced on Paetus. Basically, an unconditional Roman withdrawal from Armenia. Nero and the Senate decided to resume the war instead, recalling the disgraced Paetus and putting additional powers and forces in the hands of Corbulo. Foremost among these was the Eastern Imperium, not granted since the fall of Germanicus. Corbulo used his new status to assemble four legions, along with auxiliaries from the Anatolian provinces and local client kingdoms. Marching this huge force across the Euphrates, Corbulo was met by envoys from the Parthian king Vologases and his younger brother, an erstwhile Armenian king, Tiridates. Per Nero's instructions, Corbulo negotiated a peace backed by strength. The crux was that Tiridates would lay down his crown before a statue of the Roman emperor, then reclaim it in Rome from the hands of Nero himself. In a ceremony held at Rondea, site of the earlier Roman defeat, Tiridates laid down his Armenian crown in the presence of Corbulo, then prepared himself for the long journey to Rome. A Roman garrison would remain behind in Sophene, and Roman gold and artisans would help reconstruct the Armenian capital of Artaxata. In the end, both sides were satisfied, some measure of honor had been restored, and Corbulo and Tiridates sealed the deal with a banquet. After five years of on-and-off warfare, Rome and Parthia had finally been reconciled. After meeting with Tiridates in Ecbatana to wish him safe travels, Vologases was free to ponder both an empire and region at peace. While he'd remain friendly with Rome, in fact Nero would invite him to the capital several times, Vologases spent the rest of his reign steering the Parthians away from Hellenism and back toward Persian traditions. The Parthian script was changed from Greek to Pahlavi, Greek city names were replaced with Persian ones, and the fire temples of Ahura Mazda once again dotted the countryside. Similar policies would also be enacted by Vologases' brother Pacorus, the king of neighboring Media Atropatine, and eventually by Tiridates in Armenia. The latter was fairly unsurprising, since, in addition to being king, Tiridates was also a Zoroastrian priest.
The peace with Parthia was also likely welcomed by Sohamus and Drusilla. After all, the Emocene royals now had a young prince to raise. That's right, early in their marriage, Drusilla had given birth to a son named Gaius Julius Alexio, the great-great-grandson of Antony and Cleopatra. From a young age, Alexio would have been taught the responsibilities of an Emocene ruler. Along with providing security, prosperity, and unflinching loyalty to Rome, Sohamus also had one additional role, high priest of the Emocene sun god, Elagabal. Dressed in the Parthian style, a long purple tunic embroidered with gold, gold and purple trousers, and a jeweled diadem on his head, Sohamus would rise each day to greet the dawn and invoke the sun god's blessing. And, though his precise role was unique, he was hardly alone. For Greeks as far back as the late Bronze Age, it was Helios crossing the sky in his chariot. The Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was created in the sun god's image. For the Babylonians, it was Shamash, who Gilgamesh had prayed to each day and had given him dreams and victory in battle. For the Persians, it was Mithras, from the old Aryan Mitra, who feasted with Sol the sun god on the hide of a slaughtered bull. In the first century AD, all these deities were still going strong. Caligula had styled himself as Neos Helios, the new sun, and Selene's brother Helios had been named in the sun god's honor. Mithraism was starting to gain a following among Roman soldiers in the east, and Shamash was still widely revered across Mesopotamia as the ultimate dispenser of justice. The cult of Elagabal thrived alongside all these traditions, and adopted their mysteries into its own. Each spring, Sohamus officiated over the ancient Babylonian Akitu festival, a two-week series of rituals and prayers to celebrate the harvest. And, though direct evidence is lacking, the Emocene priest king may have also presided over an even more significant ritual, the seasonal procession of the giant black stone between the cult centers of Emesa and Heliopolis. As time passed and all remained quiet, Drusilla may have begun to hope she was experiencing the new normal. Of course, it was only the calm before a series of storms, the first of which broke in the summer of 64 AD. Word reached the Emocene court that Rome had burned to the ground. The great fire of Rome began in shops near the Circus Maximus, but was whipped up by evening winds and soon spread out of control. The southern part of the city a warren of winding streets and closely packed hovels, was quickly consumed. Then the fire began to mount the slopes of the Celian and Aventine hills. Residents fled in terror, and looters took advantage as the flames spread unimpeded across the city. The emperor's palace was partly destroyed, though Nero himself was away at Antium. Sorry, folks, the whole fiddling thing was just a later embellishment. After six days of devastation, the fire was finally contained, just before it could reach the Esquiline Hill. 
Upon his return to the city, Nero organized food supplies and opened gardens and public buildings to house the many refugees. Of Rome's fourteen districts, three were utterly destroyed, and another seven saw serious damage. There were suspicious reports of some fires being set on purpose, even on official orders. But Nero quickly squelched these rumors and identified the true culprits. They were a pretty easy target, a group whom many Romans already considered an alien presence hiding in their midst. They were the followers of Christus, the Christmen, also known as the Christians. As an eastern queen, Drusilla must have had some awareness of the growing Jewish cult, which, like Mithraism, appealed to the poor and disenfranchised. Aside from the Jerusalem community, known locally as Nazarenes, a large Christian community had also grown up in Antioch, first overseen by an apostle named Peter, and now under a pagan convert named Evodius. Sizable communities also existed in Ephesus, Corinth, and other major cities, including Rome. Well, if the Roman Christians dealt in fire, they'd be repaid in kind. Nero first had all known Christians arrested and tortured, until they provided a full list of their compatriots. Once all who could be found were imprisoned, the retribution began. According to Tacitus, the Christians were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened on crosses and, when daylight failed, were burned to serve as lamps by night. Nero offered his own royal garden for the spectacle, and gave a similar exhibition in the Circus Maximus. Unfortunately for the emperor, instead of quenching the Roman thirst for vengeance, his cruelty only created sympathy for his victims. The most notable figures executed in the Purge were two Christian leaders named Peter and Paul. Peter had come to Rome years earlier from Antioch, and was leader of the local Christian community. Paul had been transferred from Judea to Rome to face trial around 60 AD, though he was allowed to preach while waiting on his trial date. After the great fire, Paul was beheaded by Nero, which, I've got to say, for a Christian under Nero was pretty light treatment. Peter, by contrast, suffered an indescribably painful death. Believing himself unworthy to suffer the same fate as his master, Peter asked to be crucified upside down. Drusilla likely learned that Evodius, Peter's successor in nearby Antioch, was also to be executed on Nero's orders. And, as I'll cover next episode, James the Just, the brother of Jesus, had been stoned to death in Jerusalem years before. It was pretty clear that the early Christian church was under attack on all fronts. Ironically, it was the coming tragedy in Judea that would resurrect the movement and set it on its path to eventual Roman conquest. <laughs> ¶¶ 